0: CHAPTER Twenty Five OF THE WORLD'S FAMOUS ORATIONS, VOLUME 1. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY THOMAS BOSK THE WORLD'S FAMOUS ORATIONS, VOLUME 1, BY VARIOUS ISCHANESE, AGAINST STESIPHON, OR ON THE CROWN, PART 2 My objections to his public conduct shall be more explicit. I am informed that Demosthenes, when admitted to his defense, means to enumerate four different periods in which he was engaged in the administration of affairs. One and the first of these, as I am assured, he accounts that time in which we were at war with Philip for Amphipolis, and this period he closes with the peace and alliance which we concluded in consequence of the decree proposed by Philocrates, in which Demosthenes had equal share, as I shall immediately demonstrate. The second period he computes from the time in which we enjoyed this peace down to that day when he put an end to a treaty that had till then subsisted and himself proposed the decree for war. The third, from the time when hostilities were commenced, down to the fatal battle of Coronia the fourth is this present time. After this particular specification, as I am informed, he means to call on me, and to demand explicitly on which of these four periods I found my prosecution, and at what particular time I object to his administration as inconsistent with the public interest. Should I refuse to answer, should I attempt the least evasion or retreat, he boasts that he will pursue me and tear off my disguise that he will haul me to the tribunal, and compel me to reply, that I may then at once confound this presumption, and guard you against such artifice, I thus explicitly reply, before these your judges, before the other citizens, spectators of this trial, before all the Greeks who have been solicitous to hear the event of this cause, and of these I see no small number, but rather more than ever yet known to attend on any public trial, I thus reply, I say that on every one of these four periods which you have thus distinguished is my accusation founded. You had the fairest opportunity, Athenians, of concluding this first peace in conjunction with the General Assembly of the Greeks, had certain persons suffered you to wait the return of our ambassadors, at that time sent through Greece to invite the states to join in the General Confederacy against Philip and in the progress of these negotiations, the Greeks would have freely acknowledged you the leading state. Footnote. Described by Ischines in an omitted paragraph as, that piece of which you Demosthenes and Philocrates were the first movers. End of footnote. Of these advantages were you deprived by Demosthenes and Philocrates, and by the bribes which they received in traitorous conspiracy against your government, If at first view this assertion should seem incredible to any in this tribunal, let such attend to what is now to be advanced, just as men sit down to the accounts of money a long time since expended. We sometimes come from home possessed with false opinions of the state of such accounts, but when the several sums have been exactly collected, there is no man of a temper so obstinate as to dissemble or to refuse his assent to the truth of that which the account itself exhibits. Hear me in the present cause with dispositions of the same kind. And if with respect to past transaction, any one among you has come hither possessed with an opinion that Demosthenes never yet appeared as advocate for the interests of Philip, in dark confederacy with Philocrates, if any man, I say, be so persuaded let him suspend his judgment, and neither assent nor deny until he has heard, for justice requires this. The Prince, whose gold purchased these important points, is by no means to be accused. Before the treaty was concluded, and previously to his solemn engagements, we cannot impute it as a crime that he pursued his own interests but the men who traitorously resigned into his hands the strength and security of the state should justly feel the severest effects of your resentment. He, then, who now declares himself the enemy of Alexander, Demosthenes, who at that time was the enemy of Philip, he who objects to me my connections of friendship with Alexander, proposed a decree utterly subversive of the regular and gradual course of public business by which the magistrates were to convene an assembly on the 8th of the month a a day destined to the sacrifices and religious ceremonies in honor of Aesculapius, when the rites were just preparing. After these festivals, our assemblies were accordingly convened. In the first was the general resolution of our allies publicly read, the heads of which I shall here briefly recite. They, in the first place, resolved that you should proceed to deliberate only about a peace, of an alliance not one word was mentioned, and this not from inattention, but because they deemed even a peace itself rather necessary than honorable. In the next place, they wisely provided against the fatal consequences of the corruption of Demosthenes, for they expressly resolved still further, that it shall and may be lawful for any of the Grecian states whatever, within the space of three months, to accede in due form to this treaty, to join in the same solemn engagements, and to be included in the same stipulations. Thus were two most important points secured. First, an interval of three months was provided for the Greeks, a time sufficient to prepare their deputations, and then the whole collected body of the nation stood well affected and attached to Athens that if at any time the treaty should be violated, we might not be involved in war single and unsupported. These resolutions are themselves the amplest testimony to the truth of my assertions. It remains that I produce some instances of his abandoned flattery. For one whole year did Demosthenes enjoy the honor of a senator, and yet in all that time it never appears that he moved to grant precedency to any ministers." For the first, the only time, he conferred this distinction on the ministers of Philip, he servilely attended to accommodate them with his cushions and his carpets. By the dawn of day he conducted them to the theater, and by his indecent and abandoned adulation, raised a universal uproar of derision. When they were on their departure towards Thebes, he hired three teams of mules, and conducted them in state into that city. Thus did he expose his country to ridicule, but that I may confine myself to facts, read the decree relative to the grant of precedency. And yet this abject, this enormous flatterer, when he had been the first that received advice of Philip's death from the emissaries of Chiridimus, pretended a divine mission, and with a shameless lie, declared that this intelligence had been conveyed to him, not by Chiridimus, but by Jupiter and Minerva. Thus he dared to boast that these divinities, by whom he had sworn falsely in the day, had condescended to hold communication with him in the night, and to inform him of futurity. Seven days had now scarcely elapsed since the death of his daughter, when this wretch, before he had performed the usual rites of mourning, before he had duly paid her funeral honors, crowned his head with a chaplet, put on his white robe, Made a solemn sacrifice in spite of law and decency, and this when he had lost his child, the first, the only child that had ever called him by the tender name of Father. I say not this to insult his misfortunes, I mean but to display his real character, for he who hates his children, he who is a bad parent cannot possibly prove a good minister, He who is insensible to that natural affection which should engage his heart to those who are most intimate and near to him, can never feel a greater regard to your welfare than to that of strangers. He who acts wickedly in private life cannot prove excellent in his public conduct. He who is base at home can never acquit himself with honor when sent to a strange country in a public character, for it is not the man but the scene that changes." When Philip, then, had possessed himself of Thermopylae by surprise, when, contrary to all expectation, he had subverted the cities of the Phocians, when he had raised the state of Thebes to a degree of power too great, as we then thought, for the times or for our interest, when we were in such consternation, that our effects were all collected from the country and deposited within these walls, the severest indignation was expressed against the deputies in general, who had been employed in the negotiation of the peace, but principally, and above all others, against Philocrates and Demosthenes, because they had not only been concerned in the deputation, but were the first movers and authors of the decree for peace. It happened at this juncture that a difference arose between Demosthenes and Philocrates, nearly on the same occasion which you yourselves suspected must produce animosities between them, the ferment which arose from hence, together with the natural distemper of his mind, produced such counsels as nothing but an abject terror could dictate, together with a malignant jealousy of the advantages which Philocrates derived from his corruption. He concluded that by inveighing against his colleagues and against Philip, Philocrates must inevitably fall, that the other deputies must be in danger, that he himself must gain reputation and notwithstanding his baseness and treachery to his friends, he must acquire the character of a consummate patriot. The enemies of our tranquility perceived his designs. They at once invited him to the gallery, and extolled him as the only man who disdained to betray the public interest for a bribe. The moment he appeared, he kindled up the flame of war and confusion. He it was, Athenians, who first found out that the Sarian fort, and Doriscum and Ergisce and Murgusga and Ganos and Ganades, places whose very names were hitherto utterly unknown, and such was his power in perverting and perplexing that if Philip declined to send his ministers to Athens, he represented it as a contemptuous insult on the state. If he did send them, they were spies and not ministers. If he inclined to submit his disputes with us to some impartial mediating state, no equal umpire could be found, he said, between us and Philip. This prince gave us up the Hellanissus. But he insisted that we should not receive it unless it was declared, not that he resigned, but restored. Thus cavilling about syllables... And to crown all his conduct by paying public honors to those who had carried their arms into Thessaly and Magnesia, under the command of Aristodemus. In direct violation of the treaty, he dissolved the peace, and prepared the way for calamity and war. When he had finished, he presented a decree to the secretary longer than the Iliad, more frivolous than the speeches which he usually delivers, or than the life which he has led filled with hopes never to be gratified, and with armaments never to be raised. And while he diverted your attention from his fraud, while he kept you in suspense by flattering assurances, he seized the favorable moment to make his grand attack, and moved that ambassadors should be sent to Eritrea, who should entreat the Eritreans, because such entreaties were mighty necessary, not to send their contribution of five talents to Athens, but to entrust it to Callius, Again, he ordained that ambassadors should be appointed to repair to Orium, and to prevail on that state to unite with Athens in strict confederacy. And now it appeared that through this whole transaction, he had been influenced by a traitorous motive, for these ambassadors were directed to solicit the people of Orium also to pay their five talents, not to you, but to Callius. To prove the truth of this, read the decree not all the pompous preamble, the magnificent account of navies, the parade and ostentation, but confine yourself to the point of fraud and circumvention, which were practiced with too much success by this impious and abandoned wretch, whom the decree of Stesiphon declares to have persevered, through the course of all his public conduct, in an inviolable attachment to the state. Here is a grand account of ships and of levies, of the full moon, and of conventions. Thus were you amused by words, while in fact you lost the contributions of your allies. You were defrauded of ten talents. It remains that I inform you of the real motive which prompted Demosthenes to procure this decree, and that was a bribe of three talents, one received from Chalcis by the hands of Callius, another from Eretria, by Clitarchus, the sovereign of this state the third paid by Orium, by which means the stipulation was discovered. For as Orium is a free state, all things are there transacted by a public decree. And as the people of this city had been quite exhausted in the war with Philip, and reduced to the utmost indigence, they sent over Nacidemus, who had once been their sovereign, to entreat Demosthenes to remit the talent, promising on this condition To honor him with the statue of bronze to be erected in their city. He answered their deputy that he had not the least occasion for their paltry brass, that he insisted on his stipulation which Callias should prosecute. The people of Orium, thus pressed by their creditor, and not prepared to satisfy him, mortgaged their public revenues to Demosthenes for this talent, and paid him interest at the rate of one drachma a month for each mina until they were enabled to discharge the principle. And to prove this, I produce the decree of the Oreatans. Here is a decree, Athenians, scandalous to our country. It is no small indication of the general conduct of Demosthenes, and it is an evidence of the most flagrant kind, which must condemn Stesiphon at once. For it is not possible that he who has descended to such sorbid bribery can be that man of consummate virtue which Ctesiphon has presumed to represent him in his decree. And what can be conceived, surprising or extraordinary, that we have not experienced? Our lives have not passed in the usual and natural course of human affairs. No, we were born to be an object of astonishment to posterity. Do we not see the king of Persia, he who opened a passage for his navy through Mount Athos, who stretched his bridge across the Hellespont, who demanded earth and water from the Greeks, he who in his letters presumed to style himself sovereign of mankind from the rising to the setting sun, now no longer contending to be lord over others, but to secure his personal safety, do not we see those crowned with honor and ennobled with the command of the war against Persia, who rescued the Delphian temple from the sacrilegious hands? Has not Thebes, our neighboring state, Been in one day torn from the midst of Greece, and although this calamity may justly be imputed to her own pernicious counsels, yet we are not to ascribe such infatuation to any natural causes, but to the fatal influence of some evil genius. Are not the Lacedaemonians, those wretched men, who had but once slightly interfered in the sacrilegious outrage on the temple, who in their day of power aspired to the sovereignty of Greece? now reduced to display their wretchedness to the world by sending hostages to Alexander, ready to submit to the fate which he shall pronounce on themselves and on their country, to those terms which a conqueror and an incensed conqueror shall vouchsafe to grant. And is not this our state, the common refuge of the Greeks, once the great resort of all the ambassadors from the several cities, sent to implore our protection as their sure resource, now obliged to contend, not for sovereign authority, but for our native land? And to these circumstances have we been gradually reduced from that time when Demosthenes first assumed the administration. And let it be observed that in these his negotiations he committed three capital offenses against the state. In the first place, when Philip made war on us only in name, but in reality pointed all his resentment against Thebes, as appears sufficiently from the event, and needs not any further evidence, he insidiously concealed this, of which it so highly concerned us to be informed. And pretending that the alliance now proposed was not the effect of the present conjuncture, but of his negotiations, he first prevailed on the people not to debate about conditions, but to be satisfied that the alliance was formed on any terms. And having secured this point, he gave up all Boeotia to the power of Thebes, by inserting this clause in the decree that if any city should revolt from the Thebans, the Athenians would grant their assistance to such of the Boeotians only as should be resident in Thebes, thus concealing his fraudulent designs in spacious terms, and betraying us into his real purposes, according to his usual practice. As if the Boeotians who had really labored under the most grievous oppression, were to be fully satisfied with the fine periods of Demosthenes, and to forget all resentment of the wrongs which they had suffered. Then, as to the expenses of the war, two-thirds of these he imposed on us, who were the farthest removed from danger, and one-third only on the Thebans, for which, as well as all his other measures, he was amply bribed. And with respect to the command, that of the fleet he indeed divided between us, the expense he imposed entirely on Athens, and that of the land forces, if I am to speak seriously I must insist on it, he absolutely transferred to the Thebans, so that during this whole war our general Stratocles had not so much authority as might enable him to provide for the security of his soldiers. And here I do not urge offenses too trivial for regard of other men. No, I speak them freely, all mankind condemn them, and you yourselves are conscious of them, yet will not be roused to resentment. For so completely has Demosthenes habituated you to his offenses, that you now hear them without emotion or surprise. But this should not be. They should excite your utmost indignation, and meet their just punishment, if you would preserve those remains of fortune which are still left to Athens. And here let us recall to mind those gallant men whom he forced out to manifest destruction, without one sacred rite happily performed, one propitious omen to assure them of success, and yet, when they had fallen in battle, presumed to ascend their monument with those coward feet that fled from their post, and pronounced his encomiums on their merit. But, O thou who, on every occasion of great and important action, hast proved of all mankind the most worthless, in the insolence of language the most astonishing. Canst thou attempt in the face of these, thy fellow citizens, to claim the honor of a crown for the misfortunes in which thou hast plunged to thy city? Or should he claim it? Can you restrain your indignation, and has the memory of your slaughtered countrymen perished with them? Indulge me for a moment, and imagine that you are now not in this tribunal, but in the theater, imagine that you see the herald approaching, and the proclamation prescribed in this decree on the point of being delivered. And then consider whether will the friends of the deceased shed more tears at the tragedies, at the pathetic stories of the great characters to be presented on the stage, or at the insensibility of their country. That I may now speak of the fourth period, and thus proceed to the present times, I must recall one particular to your thoughts. That Demosthenes not only deserted from his post in battle, but fled from his duty in the city, under the pretense of employing some of our ships, in collecting contributions from the Greeks. But, when contrary to expectation, the public dangers seemed to vanish, he again returned. At first he appeared a timorous and dejected creature. He rose in the assembly, scarcely half alive, and desired to be appointed a commissioner for settling and establishing the treaty. But during the first progress of these transactions, you did not even allow the name of Demosthenes to be subscribed to your decrees, but appointed Nausicles, your principal agent. Yet now he has the presumption to demand a crown. When Philip died and Alexander succeeded to the kingdom, then did he once more practice his impostures. He raised altars to Pausanias, and loaded the Senate with the odium of offering sacrifices and public thanksgivings on this occasion. He called Alexander a Margitus, and had the presumption to assert that he would never stir from Macedon. For that he would be satisfied with parading through his capital, and there tearing up his victims in search of happy omens. And this, said he, I declare, not from conjecture, but from a clear conviction of this great truth, that glory is not to be purchased but by blood. The wretch, whose veins have no blood, who judged of Alexander not from the temper of Alexander, but from his own dastardly soul. But when the Thessalians had taken up arms against us, and the young prince at first expressed the warmest resentment, and not without reason, when an army had actually infested Thebes, then he was chosen our ambassador. But when he had proceeded as far as Cytheron. He turned and ran back to Athens. Thus has he proved equally worthless, both in peace and in war. But what is most provoking, you refused to give him up to justice, nor would you suffer him to be tried in the general council of the Greeks. And if that be true which is reported, he has now repaid your indulgence by an act of direct treason. For the mariners of the Parhalian Galley and the ambassadors sent to Alexander report, and with great appearance of truth, that there is one Aristian, a Platian, the son of Aristobulus, the apothecary, if any of you know the man. This youth, who is distinguished by the beauty of his person, lived a long time in the house of Demosthenes. How he was there employed, or to what purposes he served, is a matter of doubt, and which it might not be decent to explain particularly. And as I am informed, He afterward contrived, as his birth and course of life were a secret to the world, to insinuate himself into the favor of Alexander, with whom he lived with some intimacy. This man Demosthenes employed to deliver letters to Alexander, which served in some sort to dispel his fears, and effected his reconciliation with the prince, which he labored to confirm by the most abandoned flattery. And now observe how exactly this account agrees with the facts which I allege against him, for if Demosthenes had been sincere in his professions, had he really been that mortal foe to Alexander, there were three most fortunate occasions for an opposition, not one of which he appears to have improved. The first was when this prince had but just ascended the throne, and, before his own affairs were duly settled, passed over into Asia, when the king of Persia was in the height of all his power, amply furnished with ships, with money, and with forces and extremely desirous of admitting us to his alliance, on account of the danger which then threatened his dominions. Did you then utter one word, Demosthenes? Did you rise up to move for any one resolution? Am I to impute your silence to terror, to the influence of your natural timidity? But the interests of the state cannot wait the timidity of a public speaker. Again, when Darius had taken the field with all his forces, when Alexander was shut up in the defiles of Cilicia, and as you pretended destitute of all necessaries, when he was on the point of being trampled down by the Persian cavalry, this was your language, when your insolence was insupportable to the whole city, when you marched about in state with your letters in your hands, pointing me out to your creatures as a trembling and desponding wretch, calling me the Gilded Victim, and declaring that I was to be crowned for sacrifice, if any accident should happen to Alexander, still were you totally inactive, still you reserved yourself for some fairer occasion. I presume, then, it must be universally acknowledged that these are the characteristics of a friend to our free constitution. First, he must be of a liberal descent both by father and mother lest the misfortune of his birth should inspire him with a prejudice against the laws which secure our freedom. Secondly, he must have descended from such ancestors as have done service to the people, at least from such as have not lived in enmity with them. This is indispensably necessary, lest he should be prompted to do that state some injury in order to revenge the quarrel of his ancestors. Thirdly, he must be discreet and temperate in his course of life, lest the luxurious dissipation of his fortune might tempt him to receive a bribe in order to betray his country. Fourthly, he must have integrity united with a powerful elocution, for it is the perfection of a statesman to possess that goodness of mind which may ever direct him to the most salutary measures, together with a skill and power of speaking which may effectually recommend them to his hearers. Yet of the two, integrity is to be preferred to eloquence. Fifthly, he must have a manly spirit, that in war and danger he may not desert his country. It may be sufficient to say, without further repetition, that a friend to the arbitrary power of a few is distinguished by the characteristics directly opposite to these. End of chapter 25